Hello, and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week, I'm talking to Joe Dukes, who is Trust Curriculum Research Lead at the Education Alliance Academy Trust that we refer to throughout as Teal Academy Trust. Joe and I spoke in half term of this year about her career in teaching and the different leadership roles she's had, including her current role, which is trust wide and how she's been supporting staff with ideas about research to inform their practice during COVID-19. Jo also opens up really honestly about a time where she felt that her teaching style was at odds with the commonly held idea of what an Ofsted outstanding lesson should look like and how that made her feel. And I'm really grateful to her for being kind of honest about that. I met Jo at an event where she did a brilliant talk about why applying business theory to performance management of teaching doesn't work so we also talk a little bit about that and also it's just really nice to hear from Joe as somebody who acknowledges the challenges of the teaching profession but clearly absolutely loves being a teacher and what she does so I hope that you enjoy it. As ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Today, I am joined by Jo Dukes, who is Trust Curriculum Research Lead at the Teal Multi Academy Trust. Hi. Hi. Hello. Um, can you just start by telling us a bit uh, about yourself and your career? Yep. So um, I started teaching 20 years ago now, which is absolutely crazy to think about half my life nearly has been spent teaching. Um, you look very so- young. <laughs> Thank you. For the benefit of the listeners. <laughs> Um, and I've got beauty mode on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I did a PGCE in economics in 2000 at the University of Hull. Actually, I did a, a degree in law and business. I wanted to be a solicitor. I'd heard there was a bit of money in um, commercial law, <laughs> and that's where I wanted to go. But in my third year of teaching, uh, sorry, in my third year of my degree, I did. Uh, work experience at a law firm and I found that actually it, it wasn't for me. Um, the, the, the lawyer that I was uh, shadowing spent a lot of time sat in his, in his office talking into a dictaphone and I was just like oh no this is not for me. So kind of all those years of thinking I knew what I wanted to do were out the window and so I kind of stumbled into teaching really. I've gone to a, a careers advisor and ended up kind of just yeah that'll do you know it's said to me oh, you like being around people and you want your days to be different. Well, what about teaching? So, uh, so yes, yeah, so I did um, my PGC at the University of Hull in economics and I've never taught economics. Uh, there's just not that much demand for it. Um, I've, I've spent most of my career teaching business and as with most business teachers, you end up doing a bit of IT. Um, and also, I, um, I've, I've taught law as well. So my first school 
back in 2002, 2000, you know, 2001, sorry, to 2003, um, was an inner city school in Hull, which was where I think um, I really did earn my stripes those two years. That was really, really tough. Between 2002, 2008, I worked in different schools, teaching business or, or IT. And then I saw a position at my old school, the school that I used to go to, Bevan High School. And um, it was for a teacher of business and law. And I thought, well, that's perfect. That's perfect for me. Um, so I applied for that job. And when I went for the interview, the, the subjects were under a, a bigger department, under the IT uh, the head of IT kind of led those departments. And so at the interview, I just kind of said, what's the scope for those subjects to be separate from, from IT and for me to maybe take on a leadership role? And when they called me to offer me the job, uh, they, they gave me uh, the head of uh, business and, and law. So that's kind of where my um, my middle leadership journey began. So I spent 11 years at Beverly High School. Uh, that... That role kind of developed over time. So there was business, then there were, and there was law in the department. Then I was given psychology as well, and then I was given EPQ. <laughs> and then at one point, I had I think general studies. Um, so the department was big, but it was um, really kind of bitty, and I had to manage a lot of people who were kind of specialists in other areas, but then would do maybe, you know, a couple of hours of, um, of EPQ a week or whatever. So that it was challenging, but I really enjoyed that. I also did a few years as a, a year leader at, um, at Beverly High, um, which was, if, if anybody ever wants a job where one single phone call can throw your day out of the window, then um, pastoral and, and year leader should, should be good. Um, and I think as well, I think that's what I always thought I wanted to do was kind of a pastoral uh, route. But um, as much as I enjoyed it, I, I much prefer to be kind of more in control. Um, so um, I kind of pulled back um, just into the, into the subject leadership for a while. And then in 2017, um, I was, um, or our head teacher was on maternity leave. And we had a, an acting head teacher who had, um, who was our deputy, but he had heard John Thompson speak, and um, he decided that he thought that the direction of the school should be to kind of follow an evidence-based approach um, in terms of uh, teaching, and learning, and policy. So he'd seen that Huntington Research School were running a course called Leading Learning, and he was willing to pay for. Um, five people from the school to go on that course, which were, would include himself and um, another member of the senior leadership team. But then he opened that up to three members of staff. Um, and there was quite a lot of interest in that. I think 12 people applied for, for those places. And um, I had I was lucky in that I'd been, for a few years previously, uh, really interested in evidence-based um, teaching and learning. And I'd kind of started to immerse myself in it. So. I was in a good position to get one of those uh, places and that then led to a research lead role within the school um, and then in 2019 I, I, um, I applied for and got um, a role of uh, curriculum research lead across um, TO Trust. So that's where I am now. <laughs> 
Fantastic. Really interesting to to hear about how your career has developed. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will be thinking about the kind of choices and um, and work that, you, that you've done to move, move forward. Um, I'm curious to know what exactly a trust uh, sort of curriculum research lead does. What, what did that job look like kind of pre-COVID? Yeah, I mean, it's very different now. Um, so... When we, uh, so actually the two of us from Bentley High School moved over into these curriculum research lead roles at, at Teal. So there was myself and Joe Tiffany. Um, so when I say we, I'm talking about a team of us. But um, Johnny Utley, who was our CEO, uh, one of the things he really wanted us to do was to take our experience of leading CPD at Bentley High School and developing an evidence-based programme of CPD and professional development. Um, and scale that up across the trust. So we spent kind of between September and March um, being part of a wider team that were uh, putting together and starting to run the performance development and professional development, sorry, um, across the multi-academy trust. And we were really only just getting our teeth into it just before lockdown. We were supposed to have a, a trust training day, which was going to be this really amazing, immersive experience with all teaching staff from across the trust, where, where we just spent a whole day really considering and looking at and delving into research and evidence. And of course, we've not been able to do that. Um, so that's been, yeah, it's been quite disappointing in that way. But so that was the role originally. I think in a broader sense, um, eventually the role would have developed. So we would have been a, almost a conduit between the research and uh, decision-making and the teachers as well. We could have been a somewhere to touch base if they were looking for and, and we had actually started to get to that point. We would have teachers emailing us, asking us for, you know, do you have any evidence around a, a particular area? And we, we were starting to do that. So, so that was the role then. Um, and 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 how have things have things changed as a result of of covid is this is just a lot of your activity kind of on on pause or are you are you working in a slightly different way with people yeah so i think it's um when lockdown when we first went into lockdown we um we then were, it was almost firefighting, so we were looking then for the evidence around kind of effective home learning uh, or effective remote learning, looking for evidence that would be useful for parents. So, for example, within the first few weeks, we'd, we'd created um, a parent's guide for the evidence around supporting uh, your children at home and that kind of thing. So, it, over lockdown, it was a bit like that. It felt a bit like firefighting. Um, and... Um, I suppose there is still an element of that now because, um, you know, in terms of remote learning, for example, a lot of our focus has been on what is the evidence around. So, for example, we're using the EEF uh, rapid um, report on uh, what makes effective remote learning and trying to kind of get that out to staff in, in a way that's accessible and useful and is not going to take loads of their time and uh, isn't going to stress them out as well. Because... People are stressed at the minute. It's a stressful time. So, um, yeah, it feels like a different role at the minute. And I um, 
and I expect that everybody's in that position actually. Yeah, so as you say, a lot more responsive to the kind of challenges being being faced on the ground and how you can then apply evidence to that. Um, I think it's interesting to, to hear you speak about the way that then you're this kind of central point across the trust who can focus on on sharing this practice and people know know to come to you uh, in mm-hmm. some of the conversations that I've had with, with people who who work in who work in similar ways across a group, it does seem that it really um, sort of amplifies and multiplies um, the the amount of, of of research that people can get to and and understand when you have somebody with this sort of central focus um, and lots of schools dipping into it. Um, it just seems it just seems like a really effective way to uh, to to do that. Um, has that been your experience in in, in the trust? Yeah, and actually, we've been we're so lucky that um, within all of the schools in the trust, actually, we've got people who are really engaged as well, who to start with might be coming to us, but now I can see that they're taking more of a uh, ownership of, of their own kind of um, of research and how it's used in their school. Um, so, for example, at, at South Hunsley, uh, which is one of our trust schools, um, one of the assistant heads, Whitney, uh, Whitney May Bauer, she is just fantastic. The... Um, the resources that she's been putting together for staff at the school are just amazing, along with um, the a science teacher there, Helen Savory, who's fantastic. So what, what we're kind of seeing is that schools are now, whereas before they might have come to us a bit more, now they're starting to really take ownership of it. And actually, that's exactly what we would want, wouldn't we? Essentially, mm-hmm. we would want to be redundant because we want everybody to be taking ownership of, of their own development and their own uh, use of, of research and evidence. So... Yeah, and have you have you found um, that generally pe- people are quite quite open um, to to working in this way when you when you as you say break it down and make it more accessible for them? And when I say that, I'm not suggesting that people aren't capable of dealing with the complexities of the original research. As you, as you say, they're time poor, and and they want something that's going to help them with a particular challenge. Um. So. When I was at Beverly High School, it was much easier to get a feel of whether that was the case or not because it was it's um, a local authority school and it it, it had um, a teaching staff of about seventy and we all kind of knew each other, so the feedback was relatively instant and you could get and it was relatively informal as well. So you might be talking to your, you know your colleagues in the staff room and you would find out that they would be saying you know, they would say to us. They would say to us that they they found it useful, or they were much they felt more empowered, that they preferred this style of professional development. One of the things that I've kind of struggled with moving into a trust leadership role is that you don't get that feedback because you're not as kind of on the ground as as, as you would be in a, in a different context. So um, the times I have had it. Um, that, that kind of feedback is if I've gone into one of the schools to work with. For example, I worked at, at Snaith with the science department, um, and then you know, they did get that feedback. But nobody has ever said to me, or I've never heard anyone really say, I don't want to know what works, and I don't yeah. want to be looking better. Because teachers generally do, don't they? They want to know that they're doing things that are um, effective, and teachers... Uh, generally want to be good at their jobs so um yeah I'd be surprised if there was anyone out there 
saying saying anything otherwise. And one of the things that I'm really that I feel really strongly about is that anything that we ask teachers to do should not impact negatively on their their uh, workload. So actually, uh, the CPD that I've helped to develop in both the trust and in, in, in our school was about reducing workload, about making um, teachers' time, allowing teachers' time to be used more effectively. Um, and I don't think anyone's going to complain about having less work to do. <laughs> no, and, and, and as you say, it's kind of understanding the impact of what you're doing so you can do more of what makes a difference and less of what doesn't make a difference but just takes up time all the same. Um, no, really, really interesting stuff. And we, um, you mentioned um, John Tomsett um, and and Johnny Utley, your your CEO, were on the podcast earlier in the year talking about their book. And um, one of the things that that John spoke about was really how he how he came to evidence informed practice quite quite late in his career. He talks about his thirty years of of her, I think it is. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about about your journey um, in into sort of research and 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 evidence. Can you tell us a little bit more about about how it's changed the way that that you teach? Yeah. So. I would say I came to it late as well, but not as late as, as uh, John. Um, so I don't ever remember um, having any understanding of um, educational research um, not in my teach training, for example. We didn't. We were, I don't remember. Uh, mind you, it is a long time ago, but I, I literally don't remember anything. I don't even think I heard the term pedagogy. And so a few years of teaching, like I remember thinking, well, well, what is this thing that they're talking about? And um, I think well, people talk, don't they, about um, traditional teachers and progressive teachers. And again, phrases that I've, I've never really heard. But I think, you know, on reflection, my kind of natural teaching style is traditional. But it just made sense for me to, um, well, I know a load of stuff. And I need you to know. So I'm going to tell you what's in my head, and then I'm just going to check that you know it, and then we'll move on. And that's kind of how I always naturally taught. That's what came natural to me. And for the first few years of teaching, that was fine. And um, it worked well for me. I enjoyed it. The kids were well behaved. They seemed to enjoy it. Um, and then all of a sudden, in about, I'd say about 2011, 2012, um, the tides turned, and all of a sudden, Standing at the front of the classroom and telling pupils what you knew was not considered outstanding. And um, we were told to be outstanding. You had to, and I'm being really flippant here, by the way, um, you'd have to backflip into the classroom. Um, you would have to uh, juggle three times in a lesson. You would have to have 10,000 differentiated resources that students could choose from, but you would have to obviously guide them to make the choices in that. Um, you would have to have a starter, you would have to have a thousand mini plenaries and then a plenary. And um, these activities that we were told were really good and engaging activities, and that was a really difficult time for me because I'd spent so many years thinking that um, teaching was just me, that I'd found my thing. Um, I was one of those kids who did everything, like every opportunity that was presented to me as a child. 
Um, I was in every sports team I could be in. I would go to every club. I was in drama club. I did singing lessons, dancing lessons. I was in all the choirs. I played instruments. I did everything, but I never, ever felt that I was really good at anything. I was just okay at stuff. And I remember when I did my teacher training, there was a moment where I stood in the classroom at my first placement, and I thought, oh, this is it. This is the thing that I'm really good at. And I felt like that for quite a while. And then all of a sudden, when we're being told that actually that thing that you think you're really good at, you're not as good at it because you're not doing those amazing things that these outstanding teachers are doing. And um, we were put under quite a lot of scrutiny. Um, you know, people would come and watch and come and observe your lessons and you'd be told that, you know, your activities weren't engaging enough. I remember teaching, when I was teaching law A-level and we were looking at theft and we were considering, um, so as part of theft, uh, there has to be theft of property. So we were considering what would be property and what would not be property. And law A-level is really, really hard. Um, there's no such thing as law life. So mm. um, uh, it it was really tricky. And so the way I was teaching it was we would look at something. Is this property according to the Theft Act or not? Yes, no, why not? Or why is it? And um, the PE teacher who was observing that lesson um, told me it just wasn't fun enough. And, <laughs> and it was just so demoralised. It was so demoralising because I just all of a sudden felt this thing that I thought I was really good at, I just wasn't good at anymore. And um, so I kind of fell into this maybe about a year, a year and a half of thinking I need to get out of teaching. And I was looking for jobs out of teaching as well. And then just kind of coincidentally, around that time, or probably not coincidentally, because I think it's probably caused by stress, um, I had um, a bout of Bell's palsy, mm. which I don't know if you know anything about that. It's a facial paralysis. Mm. So I um, woke up one um, Sunday morning and um, went to have a cup of tea. And when I went to drink it, it just fell out of my mouth. And I was, what's going on? Looked in the mirror and my face wasn't moving. Um, so I was off work for a few months with that whilst I recovered. And during that time, I joined Twitter. So this was about 2000 and I'm going to say 2011. So I set up a Twitter account and um, it was an anonymous one. And I started lurking on Twitter, which at the time was in its infancy. But I was following people like um, Dylan William and John Pompey was relatively new on there. And then over the next couple of years, it started to develop a, a bit of traction. So um, then following people like Tom Sherrington, Stephen Tierney, and I started to see that there was a different way of doing it. So we didn't have to be doing backflips into the room, that we didn't need a million differentiated resources for a lesson that would take us hours to photocopy and laminate. And um, at that time, I I was trying to kind of present um, this different way of doing it at, at school. This school was going through, um, in, in those couple of years, um, the aftermath of a, a, an Ofsted grading, which put us into required improvement. And so, of course, we were trying to do all of the things we needed to do to get out of um, required improvement. So their focus wasn't at that point on that. So just within my department and within my own teaching, I started 
using and looking for evidence and starting to try and change my own practice and to um, develop the practice of um, the staff who were working within the departments that I was working with and um, also starting to look at things like my schemes of work and how they how I could use evidence and, um, in order to make them the best that they could be. So actually, it started around 2011, 12, 13 was probably when I started to dip my toe in. Um, so I, I, I was a later doctor, but not, like I said, not as late as, uh, as John. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's really interesting. And thank you um, for sharing some of those, um, those challenges that you, that you face. And I think it is, um, you know, certainly my experience uh, via being a governor for quite a long time of, of school improvements there's that there have been these you know relatively um uh damaging ideas about about perfect a- approaches and formats to 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 lessons and you know um these sort of mythical uh proformers for um that the, the people have to complete and it puts so much so much stress on the teachers to do activities for the sake of it rather than than actually thinking about the the overall impact on on the learning um and you know it's it it this, I, I imagine as somebody teaching the difference between being in a school where you can um you know work in a more um empowering way um versus somewhere where where some of those ideas um were were still in existence a time ago it must have been yeah really really tough yeah, I think it was. I think it was culture. I'm not going to blame one school in particular. Mm. I think the culture across education what yeah. was like. Everybody I spoke to, colleagues from other schools, was going through the same. And I was just really, really lucky that when I was at Beverly High School, they were brave enough to shift that culture. And then now, really, really lucky that I work in in a trust who um, who are also um, really committed to looking at what works and not putting pressure on staff to do ridiculous things so mm-hmm. I'm sure it still exists I'm sure it yeah, does yeah and um as you say you become m- more involved in in edu twitter I would recommend anyone listening gives you gives you a follow uh for your great <laughs> sense of humor as well as for your um, musings on education research um uh, but we actually met in person um, uh, it was a year or so ago now on a on a rather soggy Saturday in, in October and uh, we were at a, an event called New Voices um, and um, I had the pleasure of listening to you give a brilliant talk on the subject of performance management and it just it just really struck a chord with me I like the way that you that you um, made your points um, is there any chance that you could give us a kind of quick quick summary of your thoughts there yeah so that that talk came from a, a blog that I did, and um, it was a blog that I kind of had in my head for years, really, um, just based on some observations I'd had as a business teacher. And I think that there are, um, it's really, when you're teaching business and you're considering how businesses do um, certain things, it's really hard not to draw those comparisons between education and, and, and business. Um, and there are, I think there are things that education could learn from business. I think there are some really amazing things that they do in business that we could um, learn a lot from. But equally, I think there are some things that work really, really well in business 
that don't work in education. Um, I think the, the main, my main argument being that in business, they're selling products units and um, our products are, are children's brains. And um, there are so many things that can impact on our products that are out of our control as, as teachers, um, that treating them as if, um, as if they are products and as if we are businesses is, is really harmful. So the idea that um, I felt at the time that teachers were being subject to um, management using scientific principles. So there is a theory of management called um, scientific management, which was established in the early 1900s. And um, the theory is that essentially workers are lazy, workers are motivated by money, workers need to be controlled tightly. Um, the, um, the studies that went into this kind of the development of this theory were done in, um, on production lines in factories, in fact, in, in um, an iron factory, I think, was the, was the initial one. So complete, completely out of context with, with schools. But what I was seeing was that these theories were actually being um, imposed on, on teachers. So teachers being motivated by money and then we have performance management where targets are, are set. And um, if you meet your targets, then you, know, you are subject to a pay rise. Um, this idea that um, staff needed to be tightly managed. So we were seeing teachers being observed and, you know, so there was formal observations, there were um, lesson drop-ins, and they, these were happening all the time. And this idea that work needs to be standardised, so again, the idea that every lesson had to have kind of a starter, a mini plenary, a plenary, there had to be group work, there had to be individual work, there had to be peer uh, assessment. And I was just seeing these theory, these principles of this theory kind of being played out in schools. And just going back to what I said about, well, that might work in um, mm. on a Yeah, so if you're paying a worker on a production line piece rate because you, you believe that people are motivated by money, that is completely different to giving somebody a classroom of, of 30 human beings and then telling them that, that uh, 85% of the, the human beings in that class have got to get a grade whatever to whatever. Um, so the talk really was about how I'd seen these uh, principles being played out in education, and then I just kind of went on to say why I don't think that they work. Um, and the really nice thing about it was that um, I could kind of end the talk by saying how, like, the hope for the future, because I was seeing that actually lots of schools were moving away from that. So Teal Trust, for example, now... Um, our performance development is completely decoupled from pay. So the idea is that every single teacher in, in a teal trust school will get a pay rise unless there is a very, very good reason why they shouldn't. Um, so I, we are seeing a move away from that. And I think that that's really, really positive. Yeah, um, I mean, just just thinking. Obviously, performance management will will look a bit different um, this this year, um, and uh, you know, with so many other more important things that that, that that people will be will be faced with, it it might sort of slip off people's people's radars a bit. Be interested to hear your thoughts about about how schools could or should approach it. 
Um, well, I, I mean, regardless of the pandemic or not, I think mm. that development rather than performance management is the way to go. That um, I think that as teachers, we should be really committed to improving our practice. But that really is development rather than through um, through being managed. So I think schools should be, regardless of the situation, supporting teachers in developing um, themselves as professionals. Um, and probably that's even more important at the minute because we've got so many other pressures on us as teachers now that um, trying to manage us. So again, talking about this idea that you know a student can be um, will get a certain grade solely because of the teacher. Well, no, that wouldn't happen normally because of all of the external factors. But now we've got this massive external factor, which is of course going to impact on students. And so um, I have heard that some some schools are still giving kind of quantitative targets to their teachers to meet, and I just think that is completely ridiculous um, normally but even more so now um, I think the focus has to be on development and I think that we need to be helping teachers to develop um, in ways that we never really probably thought we would so in um, online learning for example and how to support students when you are teaching them remotely that's the kind of development I think we need to see and the support for teachers that we need to see now um, so yeah and and what has your experience of, of remote teaching been like? Have you got any tips you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, so it's been interesting. So to start with, it was um, it was a bit of a hybrid, actually. So I've got a year 12 class who um, a good chunk of them were isolating because they had been uh, kind of somebody within their bubble had tested positive for COVID. And um, they just kind of emailed me and said, can we just, can you just put the microphone on and we'll just be in the lesson remotely? And I said, yeah, that's fine. And it, it what, it's not as simple as that, actually. It didn't quite work. Like, you know, there's a microphone on. But there was some kind of logistical and technical issues that I had to get my head around. And um, <laughs> to be fair, it was okay. It was okay. You just find your way around it. Then um, a couple of weeks ago, we had... Um, all of year 10, the whole of year 10 were um, self-isolating, so I moved to complete remote teaching with year 10, and again, a completely different experience. Um, I think it's quite scary. I think when you are asked, you know, just, to, you know, we get an email that will just say, year, year 10 will be isolating as of tomorrow, please start with online learning. Like, that is really quite a scary thing to be presented with. It's actually not as scary as it feels like it is. Um, it's also quite nice because when you ask them to go away and get on with something, you can literally have a, a breather. Um, uh, you can sit and have your coffee, which you wouldn't be able to do uh, in, in a classroom setting. The thing I found really challenging um, is that... Do you remember there's a few years ago people saying we won't need teachers soon we'll be able to do it all remotely we can you know can have robots teaching or <laughs> we can teach from home that is that will never and it's been really quite um good because it i really know that that can never happen you cannot teach effectively remotely you can't test for learning effectively you cannot even get a sense of whether uh, your pupils are really understanding what it is that you, that you are teaching so in terms of tips, I would say for online learning, 
Um, just tell them what you need them to know. Do the best that you can. Don't worry about assessing learning at this point. Um, wait until you get them back in the classroom, and then you can do that. So with my year 10s, um, the part of the um, unit that we were coming up to was actually probably one of the most trickiest parts of the unit. We were looking at um, liability of uh, business, small business owners, and it's really tricky, and they really struggle with it normally. The worst topic, really, that could have come up for remote learning. But I kind of just spent a lot of time explaining it to them. And then when we get back after half term, I will be doing a lot of assessment of that to see where they are, to see whether we need to go back over it or to see whether we move on. So I just think, teach them as best as you can remotely, assess them um, as you would do uh, when you've got them back in the classroom. So, and um, and enjoy the enjoy the time when they're away getting on with something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah as you, as you say it does is there's there is an element of kind of keeping that that connection and the, the continuity um but with those shorter periods particularly that um it's it's important to get get them back and assess um mm-hmm. when they're when they're back um in in school and uh it is you know um who can say um and we don't like to try and um, predict the future but it does look like a lot a lot more of classes and year groups in and out and in and out on a fairly um, unpredictable basis. Um, so have you, have you made any changes to the curriculum or, or, or planning around that? Or are you just kind of um, rolling with it as it comes? Um, we have moved, within the trust, we have moved to 100-minute lessons. So every school is now teaching three lessons a day, which are 100 minutes long. And so as a result of that, there have had to be curriculum changes. Um, but I, I realise that not all schools are, are doing that. Um, I, I know my children's schools, uh, school, for example, are they've still got five lessons a day, um, which are an hour long. Um, 100, minute, 100 minutes, gosh, that sounds quite long. <sighs> yeah, and so it, it actually, I quite like it. I quite mm. like it. I know that it's not working for everybody, but I like the kind of the slow burn way that you can build um, concepts in a lesson that usually you might be trying to kind of rush through. So I'm a fan of 100 minute lessons. Um, it also means that you can, within lessons, you can give them a good chunk of time to work on something mm-hmm. <laughs> or extended. Um, uh, so curriculum wise, yes, we've had to make some, some changes in terms of you know, facilitating that. Um, but I think, again, I think it's going to be one of those reactionary things. I think it might be you know, at the end of maybe the year or at the end of the, the academic year that we look back and go, if, if, this, if we're going to be doing that moving on, what do we need to change? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So difficult. So, so difficult. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our with our listeners in closing? Teaching is the uh, can be the most rewarding job is in the world. Um, the connections that you make with with your pupils, you know, I'm friends now with pupils that I taught years ago. Uh, sometimes, you know, when they're back from wherever they've been to visit family, they, they might message me and see if I want to go meet them for coffee. Like, how amazing is that? I bumped into a student a few years ago 
Um, I'd just gone, gone out on a night out with friends and she came running over to my table to tell me that she only did business A-level because when you did four A-levels, you would like it was the one that you were going to drop if you remember when it was ASMA2. Oh, yeah. And she did uh, business AS as the one that she would drop. She loved it so much she stayed on and she said, you know, she got this job in marketing that she, um, she said, I would never have even thought I wanted that job and, you know, it's because of you. And that is just, how can you, how can you argue that that is not the most amazing um, job in the world to have that impact on somebody in such a positive way? And it, it actually can be the toughest job in the world too. Um, but um, I think if you, I think you know quite quickly whether teaching for you or not. I think it's one of those jobs. And if you feel that it's for you, then just keep going with it. It is um, hard work, but it's so worth it. And I also think that um, there is a lot to be said for teachers who are just really good teachers, just staying in the classroom for as long as possible. Try not to move up the ladder really, really quickly. Um, you know, I spent the first kind of uh, eight years um, of my teaching career teaching. I had a bit of time off because I had having children, but um, I was middle leader for 11 years and now I've, I've moved into trust leadership. And actually, I think those years have been really important in, in developing into the, the leader that I am, uh, one who really understands what it is to be a teacher on 22 hours a week or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, that's <laughs> great stuff. And as you say, um, you know, it's a really difficult time for the profession and there are lots of challenging things going on. But um, you have the potential to, to make the most enormous impact on on, on people's lives and um, to the extent to which you can keep keep sight on that will be will be helpful for getting through. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions. 